Welcome to episode 46 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows and I'm the director and owner of Snowpro Ski School based here in the Port de Soleil in Switzerland. I hope you're all well. It's been some time uh, since the last podcast, uh, a month and a half, but uh, I make no apologies for having been on the beach um, in Spain and Italy enjoying the heat and the sunshine and looking at the sea and generally trying to figure out what the fascination is of being next to the ocean. Um, it's certainly a cool place to hang out. Um, it's not as sort of visually interesting as, as living in the mountains is, but I can certainly see why people would be would be down there and, um, and I very much kind of enjoyed myself uh, for those places that, that, that we were at so um, so yeah that's that's kind of what I've been up to and uh, it's hot it's really hot um, compared to last summer which was an interesting one because there was a sort of a cold wind uh, all summer that, that, that kind of I know this because I'm often out on my bike uh, my motorbike and last summer it was like thermals and jumpers all summer um, because the air was cold but this summer is completely different absolutely completely different and it's scorching you know like uh we sort of regularly experiencing like 30 degrees up here and i'm at 1100 meters and it's uh it's really really hot down on the plane so um so yeah certainly a different summer to the one the one that we had last summer um i had some a load of people have written to me some people have written to me with um with uh, questions and stuff for the question and answer podcast which i haven't forgotten about i've just kind of got um got a few other interviews that i want to get out of the way so i will be doing that one uh, at some point so if you did write to me i'm not ignoring you I'm just, uh, haven't got around to it yet. Um, but thank you for writing. I appreciate that. And uh, anyone else has got questions, you can also send them in because I haven't got to the recording of that yet. Um, Greg Hilton did write to me without um, without a question, but um, he messaged me. And I always love uh, receiving correspondence. So thank you very much, Greg. Uh, hi, Dave. You appear to have taken yourself off Facebook. Um, I didn't. I was booted out of Facebook for... Um, well, basically, I was hacked. Someone took over my account. And the reason they took over my account was to access my Google Ads um, thing. Um, and so they then, once they took over my Facebook account, they then accessed my ads account, which was linked to a PayPal. And long story short is that they bought a bunch of ads. Um, and I don't know, that seems to be apparently quite a popular scam anyway all resolved now um so greg goes on to say uh we chatted on messenger hope you don't mind the email um i've just caught up with part two of the helen interview uh, very interesting discussion around the dropout rate of young girls i coached hockey here in the uk um field hockey that is and we saw the same thing even with the girls in inverted commas sport such as hockey we could go from 40 ish under 16s to 20 ish over 16s from one season to the next i think some drop sports concentrate on gcse's which are like uh, exams that you take around 16 years old in the uk and then don't come back uh, others discover socializing boys etc i did coach the same group through under 10s to under 18 year olds and there were maybe five or six who went the whole way through and they still play adult hockey now um Greg goes on to say, uh, anyhow, loving the podcast still, I did have a cunning plan to retire in my early 50s and do some ski instructing, got to Basie level two and I really enjoyed it, but then Brexit has probably scuppered any chance of part-time work. So plan C 
might be to work a bit longer and spend more recreational time in the Alps. Regards, Greg. Um, yeah, that might be the case, Greg, but I think that will change. Um, I think, uh, in terms of working, that is, um, I'm hoping to hear some news in the autumn with regards to Brits being able to work in Switzerland, but um, I've heard various things about that and we'll, we'll wait to see if they come true. And, and you can still, I think... Well, there's still certainly places that you can go. It doesn't always have to be France or, or, or Switzerland um, that you can take your level level two qualification to. I really, really appreciate you writing to me, Greg. Um, thank you for that. It's definitely a thing that, that I also see in football as well. So, uh, so yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting to have that, that um, backed up from a field hockey perspective. Podcast this week uh, is part two of the interview with Harry McFadden. Um, Harry is, uh, as as you would have got from the um, from part one, um, hugely qualified, qualified in multiple systems around the world. And in episode forty six, you'll f- you'll be happy to know, listener, that I finally put to bed all of my questions about the Japanese technical championships, and I will never bother you about them again. Um, after that, uh, we go on to talk about China, Italy and the Kiwi uh, New Zealand season coming up and uh, and I think we end yeah we do end on um, a technical chat about that sort of age-old question as to where the turn starts and get into some detail as to what the sequence is um, as Harry understands it as to how he gets the turn going um, so enjoy this uh, I'm sorry for the streaming noise the streaming noise when I recorded this is the sound of the summer over here the sound of the autumn is the leaf blow up but the sound of the summer is the strimmer and uh, there is a bit of strimmer noise in the background for this one um, so sorry about that um, the current noise that you hear outside if you can hear it is the helicopter they're moving some stuff around um, so that's one of the other delights of the valley so enjoy part two of this uh, podcast and uh, Harry and I started off talking about the Japanese technical championships um, cool Talk to me about the. Um, let's do a little tangent here. Talk to me about the this. Uh, have you done any of the technical competitions in Japan, or are you aspiring to do them? So I have done. Um, I've done four. I've done two uh, regional competitions and two state competitions. Okay. So basically, the way it works in Japan is you have to be Japanese qualified, then you do the regional, state, national, mm-hmm. okay? Now, to qualify for the national championship is very, very, very hard. And um, I've never even been close, and I know a lot of incredibly strong steers that have not even been close, but basically the you start out with the regional, and if you uh, if you get within a certain score, you then go to the state championships, and that's as high as I've got. And the the Japanese competitions are probably the highest concentration of amazing skiers I've ever seen. It's higher than when I've gone to interski, and 
my opinion. They're all skiing, uh, you know, similar, this kind of Japanese stylistic technique that we were talking about earlier, but the level of skiing is ridiculously high. (laughs) Okay. And and the format is, as I understand it, you have short turns, long turns, and moguls. It's a judged format. Is that correct? Yes. And the other two, there's short turns, long turns, moguls, and then occasionally they also throw in the mix uh, short ski free run or long ski free run. Okay. Uh, so to go to the competitions, everyone takes two pairs of skis. You take a, a slalom. Traditionally, the top guys will use a fist slalom uh-huh. ski. And they'll do the short turns, short ski free run, and the moguls on the slalom ski. Mm-hmm. And then for the long turns, people traditionally use between a 23 to a 27 meter radius GS ski. Wow. Okay. You're going to go really yes. fast. Well, because a lot of it is judged on your speed down the hill. Okay. So in order. For the long ski disciplines, you have to be absolutely flying. So for long turn and long turn free run, everyone is starting and does like a race start, like skates and tucks down a a black run. (laughs) And then you do about six turns and then you must stop, like full edge set, like stop, come to a stop, and then the judges will read out your scores. Wow. And a, a score, anything above, a score in the 90s is very strong. Like, if you're getting scores in the 90s, you'll probably make it through to, or you've got a chance to make it through to the national championships. Mm. Uh, and then... Anything above 85 is um, respectable. My best score I ever got was in a long turns run. I got an 87. Okay. And it's five judges give you their scores, mm-hmm. and then the top score and the lowest score is removed, and then the other three are averaged to wow. give your, your true score. Okay. Extraordinary. And, and then... And, Sorry, carry on. Tell me about the short turns and the moguls. What are they looking for there? So um, in the short turns, they're looking for basically maximum speed down the hill with also maximum speed across the hill. So that is a challenging kind of balancing act because the more speed you're generating across the hill or you know more deflection across the hill, you're actually going down at a slower rate. Yeah. So you've got to kind of judge it. And the funny thing is, is that they never really tell you the criteria. This is for any of it. Okay. So you basically have to watch the top guys. Yeah. And you think, okay, those top guys are going to be scoring in the 90s. Yeah. Let's look at what they do and then try and copy them. Huh. And yeah, so and, it's, it's not like a clear exam format. Like, it's no. a bit of a mystery, and I think their intention is to try and keep it a mystery. Like, I've asked top Japanese demonstrators what the criteria is, 
Yeah. And some of them, they all say, like, I think we're trying to do this. I think the judges want this this year. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's a bit of a... It's a bit of a mystery, but yeah, they're basically looking for very fast, high-speed um, short turns with some offset. But then, when they do the short ski free run, yeah. they're looking for you to change from what you might call a traditional slalom mm-hmm. turn into a medium turn, and then they might then you want to be changing it into almost like a flush in slalom. Mm-hmm. They they want you to change at least a couple of different rhythms and show a couple of different turn shapes within that. That sounds so a little bit like the Swiss free run, except the Swiss free run, you need, also need to go switch, which I'm guessing there's no switch in the uh, Japanese technical champs. But the there, there is a bit of that. They want to see that when they were talking about that, when I was doing it, he talked about it in terms of like this is your sort of this is your business card like it's your chance to for you know for you to show us what you can do you know short turns long turns mediums whatever um i think it's an amazing test of a skier you know just say here's a slope go and express yourself do what you do what you can um the with the with that short turn format though does that you're not to, there's no skidding involved in in this this is like a full-on carved turn on a pair of slalom slalom skis straight down the hill pretty much yeah they like they they will deduct points uh if you have kind of any um you know there might be on the on the steepest part of the run even the top guys might have a little bit of steering through that just top you know, that top, just tiny little bit of the turn, mm-hmm. but they're effectively looking for as clean as possible, as fast as possible on the steepest slope possible. And the other thing that they do, which is quite crazy, is the top guys skate into short turns on the steepest run. And okay. the, in the state championships where I competed in Rizutsu Resort, mm-hmm. they also hold the national championships there every few years mm-hmm. and the short turn pitch is as steep as uh many world cup runs uh-huh. it is like a wall <laughs> this sounds crazy the okay and to, and then just before i go on to my next question tell me about the moguls like what's the the, the mogul criteria so you're doing that on a pair of slalom skis and, and by yes. the way, that is, I mean, we're talking about really fine balance margins. Because you, you're trying to carve a pair of fist slalom skis down a black slope. There's not much room for error, fore-aft error, without you being kind of booted sky high and, and you know, sent over the high side or whatever. Like, the, presumably, that's not, that's not, you must see a fair bit of that, right? When guys get it wrong. Yeah, yeah, and that's the hardest part. And to be honest, that's the that's the part that if I went back and did them again, I'd I'd be trying to really train on that. The I, I often had mistakes in the fore aft trying mm-hmm. to push myself to ski at that speed, yeah. at that um, with that level of um, performance. Uh-huh. It's really a a fine a super fine line of balance. The guys that that win yeah. or are in the top ten have 
unbelievable balance. It's it really is quite um, phenomenal, and I do recommend to anyone if they're ever in Japan at the time to go and to go and watch it. Mm. Um, or I know some of the guys do train in Sas Bay in October, mm-hmm. and if anyone has the opportunity to go and watch them and really watch what they're doing, it, it is it is pretty um, pretty amazing. But then, yeah, the the most impressive part about the whole thing, in my opinion, is the moguls. Mm. The the moguls, they they kind of switch up what they want to see every year. Some years it's full zipper line. Mm-hmm. Uh, some years they'll have multiple. Well, they've always got multiple lines mm. um, next to each other, but and they're not World Cup formed. They've just been formed by everyone skiing them All right. because it's so, because it's so soft. They form really, really deep. And yeah. it may appear on video that they're quite World Cuppy, and that's because everyone skis them with a really strong technique. Mm-hmm. So they ski in really rhythmical, but they are, you know, they're not, they haven't been formed by people going up there and shaping them. Yeah. And the, some years they want you just to ski at full line, some years they want you to change, uh, change your line halfway down or something like that, you know, switch it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the only way I'd describe the moguls is they're, the, they're very rhythmical, but they're incredibly hard. They're incredibly deep. Mm. Um, and the distance from the, the, the back of one mogul to the front of the next mogul can really be quite far. And because it's so steep, you're really accelerating down the back of the mogul. Yeah. So you have to have a really strong range of flexion to be able to, to be able to absorb. And even if you're taking a more round line, so you're not getting so deep into the trough, mm. it's still the distances that you're traveling from bump to bump are really quite far. So you're just you're just flying. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the thing. That was that's always one of the, it was one of the key understandings. When I wasn't very good at moguls, I'm still not amazing, but the uh, good enough. The the one of the key understandings that I had is that every kind of mogul field has its sort of own inbuilt speed limit according to the distance between moguls. You know that the, yep. the sort of each mogul field lets you ski at a certain speed. I'm guessing that's the, you know, a factor of the gradient and who skied it previously. But once you understand it and then you kind of tune into what that speed should be, things start to arrive in a, in a rhythmical pattern that suits the way that your body moves. So if you're like a short guy who's got quick like twitch movements, you'll be able to ski that maybe faster than I would because my kind of habit is to make sort of slightly slower movements because I'm tall and... and, and big but the it's um i suppose if you're if you're trying to do that down a black run and they've got quite a long distance in between each other you're going to be taking some pretty big uh big hits on the front side of those moguls when they come especially if they're deep yeah absolutely it's um it's definitely the thing i totally agree with you with the you know kind of each mogul field kind of has its inbuilt kind of maximum or minimum speed and that can vary from skier to skier depending on their fast twitch movements, et cetera, the size of them. 
uh, things like that. But I do find like Japanese mogul lines are quite unique. I think because everyone is everyone that skis them is really a really strong, really fast, dynamic skier, mm-hmm. and um, they the the lines are the maximum speed of the line is very high. Yeah, like I think if you went up to like the top of the M25 bumps in Verbier mm-hmm. and tried to ski them at Japanese speed, you might be able to for a couple, but you can't because the rhythm and the distance is different. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the thing I was about to say. Like, so that I've stood at the top of those often, you know, those bumps that you speak of there, and, and you look at them and you kind of... You, this is not to be disrespectful of our clients, but you also, presumably, you're not just getting ski instructors ski down there, you're getting kind of tourists and stuff, and it's the same here on the Swiss wall, um, which is kind of a bit of a tourist attraction. And so you'll, you might get two or three kind of well-formed bumps in a line, and then all of a sudden, you'll get like a big traverse line in there where people have kind of chickened out of it. And so then there'll be a whole set of extra bumps after that that kind of don't really make sense, if you see what I mean. They don't arrive where you think they should be arriving. And normally when you get down to the second half of the Swiss wall, you then kind of start to see there are lines to be skied. But it's, you know, a lot of those, I suppose when you go to somewhere where kind of the pros go, if you like, then the bumps become a lot more manageable because they arrive in what appears to be the rhythmical kind of right right place, right time. And that really, that's kind of really how I made some quite big, I remember back to this, like how I made some big advances in my mogul skiing was that I found a couple of like zipper lines, organised zipper lines in Sasfe. And I found another couple in Zermatt that were like, you could see places to take away speed because the bumps were so organized. You'd be like, ah, there's the one. I can just kind of put a big check in on the face of that one, take away this kind of speed that I built up and then get back into my rhythm again. Like little opportunities to get it all back under control. And that, um, they they were quite interesting. But when you go into kind of wild mobile fields where the tourists ski, it's sometimes the bumps don't always make sense. Does that, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. I think that, like, yeah, when I think back to, you know, like, yeah, I've skied the Swiss wall and the bumps from Verbier and things like that, and that there's definitely, they're challenging because, yeah, of the amount of people that ski down them that might have a, you know, not a very ideal turn shape or, you know, skill level. I think Japanese moguls have their own challenges because they are so fast, they are so direct, they are so deep, and to ski them with rhythm, you've got to go so fast. Yeah. Uh, with a, um, so it's kind of more like your technical ability. Yeah. But if you look at uh, traditional European moguls, um, because of the factors you spoke about, it's almost more a tactical ability. Yeah. How can I flow in this? And, and that's where top European mogul skiers really stand out to me as well because I... Well, not like World Cup moguls, but like strong ski instructors that ski moguls, mm. is the rhythm is not always there in Europe. So I think the challenge in Europe is to make it look rhythmical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're, I guess there's a bit more playfulness to it as well. I think one of the mo- the best 
demonstrations I ever saw of that was on a on a Fortec exam in Val d'Isère. I had a chance to ski with Giles Lewis, who who we've interviewed previously on this uh, this podcast, and he's just a magician in the bumps, but magician because he was able just to kind of go where he wanted, you know, and just play with with play with the bumps essentially go from one place to another do different types of turns that kind of stuff and it's much more versatile than just kind of slamming down a zip you know yeah ab- absolutely absolutely and i think the best bump skiers and like can ski both amazingly well like i know the top the top japanese guys you take them to europe they could um ski the moguls kind of like how you were referring to how Giles do it and vice mm. versa. Yeah. And I think that's the, you know, to be able to be a truly good mogul skier and not saying I'm there whatsoever, I really actually struggle in moguls, but I try my hardest every time I do them. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's that balance of technical ability and tactical kind of understanding to, I suppose, read the situation, almost like what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, cool. Well, uh, are you planning to do any more technical champs, or are you uh, you put that on the shelf for now? Uh, that's on the shelf because I'm not living. I'm not doing seasons in Japan anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to go back to Japan and ski again, but um, I don't think I'll do the um, do any more Japanese competitions anymore. However, um, it hasn't happened for the last two years because of the virus, but. Um, there is a small technical competition uh, in New Zealand uh, organised by my friend Josh Duncan Smith, okay. and uh, I do that every year, and that's a cool little bit of fun. Yeah, oh, terrific. All right, um, talk to me just briefly about well, not briefly if you don't want to. I don't know how much time you've got, but uh, talk to me about China because you've done a bit there. What that presumably doesn't have quite the sort of um how would i say this doesn't quite have the sort of the long tradition the huge development of of maybe japan uh, and certainly the european nations but what 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 did you see when you were there what have you what, what were your impressions so china's very interesting I've, I've been there four times i've i've never done a season there but when i was working in japan i was going over uh, just for like short term contract work, early season and uh, late season over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, China is unique because it is the first, um, the first skiing that's open in Eastern Asia. It's kind of like almost in Europe in October. Uh, a lot of people from all around Europe will go to the glaciers. Mm-hmm. A lot of top. Uh, Japanese and Korean skiers and race teams will also go train in China okay. because it's very cold and has very good snowmaking. So mm. China's absolutely freezing over there. It's like negative 30 every day. Mm, that's um, <laughs> but they blow snow a lot and they have really clean, consistent pistes that are really fun to ski. And China has a young but very uh, enthusiastic ski culture. And I don't mean young by, like, young people. Mm. Obviously, there's young people in it, but it hasn't been around for that long. Um, To my knowledge, there's always been a little bit of skiing in China, but 
It's really been developed in the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, and so many people are interested in it. So many people want to become instructors. Um, so I've been over there and it's almost like a little mini interski early season. I've been there and I was there doing a level one for the NZSAA. And we also had the CSAA there and Basie. I've mm-hmm. also been there other times when the PSAA and IAZ were there as well. Uh, and, oh, the Austrians. I've seen the Austrians there. I've seen the Swiss there. Mm-hmm. I've seen the ESF there. Like, they are obsessed with it in China. They love it. And there are so many people that do different associations. Like, I I met someone that had four level ones. Right. And, and they were like, oh, I was just interested. So I did Bayesian, New Zealand, Canadian, and um, American. Huh. That's amazing. And uh, presumably all those associations are there because they're trying to get a piece of that market, right? Oh, yeah. And that, that well, they're trying to get a piece of the market, but part of me just thinks about it as they're there to meet demand. Like, there are many ski clubs in China of just, enthous- not race clubs, just enthusiastic skiers, and they want to do their level one, and um, NZSAA also offer a level two there. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't since the pandemic, but hopefully it comes back. Um, the ski clubs will approach uh, a ski instructor association or a training body and say, can you come over and do a level one? And... Um, I think it's so busy that some clubs have actually, you know, approached one association, can't, so they go to go to another one. Yeah. Like part of it's getting a piece of the pie over there, but part of it I just think is meeting the, the, the massive demand because a lot of the skiing is close to Beijing, mm-hmm. and Beijing is a very big city, as we all know. So a lot of skiers there, a lot of keen people, and they're really into it and really want to, learn about different ski techniques and uh, what's going on. And uh, the Chinese skiers that I've met are very driven and very focused to get better. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. And in terms of like the, the, the infrastructure on the hill, I mean, I'm unlikely, frankly, to get to China, but if I ever do, you could kind of give me a little primer on kind of what it's like. But the, the places that you ski in China, what, what, what does it... There's a few of us probably, you know, that listen to this podcast that won't make it there. What what does it, what's it like? So I've only skied in the Chongli region of uh, China, which is a couple hours north of Beijing. And that's where they had the, the Chongli area was where they had the slope style half pipe and moguls mm-hmm. for the last Olympics, but they also run Far East Cup fist races there. Mm-hmm. And there's a handful of different mountains around there. And the or the master plan is to actually have them all linked together mm-hmm. as um, a massive uh, lift system. Uh, but, <coughs> excuse me, the place that I've skied the most is a place called Wanlong, in a place called Secret Garden. Okay. Now, Wanlong and Secret Garden are actually already linked. Uh, Secret Garden's on one side of the mountain, Wanlong's on the other. Uh, You meet at the top and cross between the two resorts. Um, It is, I'd say, 90% man-made snow. Yeah. Uh, It's so cold out there that clouds don't, clouds struggle to form. 
So you'll get wow. snow early season and late season yeah. when um, uh, when it's not as cold. Like I've skied powder there, but I've skied powder in November and March. I've been there in January where it's there's no chance it'll snow at all, but they just blow heaps of snow and they've got a lot of really big, wide, open pistes mm-hmm. that are amazing to ski and you know, the resorts have, you know, modern uh, six-seated chairlifts and gondolas and good grooming and a couple of good on-mountain restaurants. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's really quite really quite cool. And um, Wan Long's got one really big restaurant, actually. It's this big. It's probably a couple thousand seats. <laughs> and uh, when I've been working over there, a lot of the Chinese guests that I've been teaching have told me that it's really quite cool to eat food there because they've got food from all around China, different dishes from all around China to try and cater to um, a whole cater to all the different people that that come skiing there. Yeah, it's oh, wow. also Secret Garden is the only place in the world I've ever seen a ski and ski out KFC. <laughs> uh, coming soon to a resort near you. Hopefully not. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Really? That's extraordinary. I'm, uh, yeah, yeah that's not going to work for me. Ah, okay. Oh, well, cool. I mean, that's, that's amazing, right? You know, the, the more the more skiers there are, the better, um, as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, and, and it's nice to hear of like you say like a young growing market because the aging you know there is a there is a thing within european skiing that the the, the, grum, the demographic is 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 an aging dem- demographic right absolutely and one thing i do think we the pandemic obviously slowed this down but as more and more and more um chinese people become interested in skiing uh first of all domestically in china they're going to start traveling around the world and, and skiing, like, first of all, in Japan, because it's close. You see a lot of um, uh, Chinese skiing in, uh, in Japan because mm-hmm. uh, the resorts are definitely more well-established there with better restaurants and things like that. But mm-hmm. I think we're going to see Chinese skiers travel more around the world. Like I know for the last few years, there's um, the Swiss Ski School have uh, had an exchange yeah. With um, a ski resort in China to get instructors over. I know of one Chinese instructor that works for uh, the ski school in Sarsfei. Yeah, um, there's a couple. There was I, a couple in Vilar as well. They were trying to keep to trying to do that same thing. Um, nice. Yeah. See those guys around as well. Yeah, it's cool. It's cool because, like you say, it's not the easiest thing in the world. But if you can come to a ski resort and there's someone there that speaks Chinese, I mean, that's you know, it, it is extraordinary, isn't it? That's like, it's a cool thing. Absolutely, and down here in New Zealand as well, the ski resorts um, hire Chinese um, Chinese uh, speaking Mandarin speaking instructors mm-hmm. um, uh, to service that market as well. Because we're getting um, more Chinese guests coming down to New Zealand as well, which is really cool. Mm. They're really keen, and also we're getting a lot of um, Chinese instructors coming down because they might sit there level one or level two mm. in China with the NZSAA. But then um, we don't host a level three in um, China because there's not really enough off-piste yeah. to be able to really market. Mm-hmm. So um, we're getting more Chinese instructors coming down to New Zealand to actually try and sit there, sit there level three and um, 
the NZSAA now has uh, two uh, level three members uh, from China that came down and did that, which is really cool. Oh, that is cool. That is really, really cool. Fantastic. All right. Um, so from a young burgeoning market to uh, to an um, older, more established market, you spent uh, the last winter in Italy. How was? How did you find that? Apart from the coffee being good, and everyone having a lovely time, and the uh, the, the beautiful Italian ski instructor style, that sort of kind of poppy up and down thing, which I just love. Um, how did you? Uh, how did you find that? How was it? Because you were in Sestriere, is that right? Yes, Sestriere. Yeah, it was It was really interesting, actually, to go and do a season there. That's where my wife's from, so we decided to go there. And um, I'd been there before, but I hadn't spent a whole season there. Mm. And uh, it was really cool. I got to um, ski with um, some incredibly good instructors. One thing I'd say about Italy is the level of... Tech, the level of the ski instructor in terms of their piece performance yeah. is probably the highest I've ever seen. The their um, the way they train their their arco medio, their medium kind of carve turn, mm-hmm. and the way they stress it through their association really stays with the instructors. And I don't think I've ever seen such amazing carve turns by that many different instructors on the mountain. Yeah. Everyone loves it. Um, It's a very traditional kind of race uh, kind of pedigree area, Mm -hmm. and it was interesting to to be a part of it. Unfortunately, we didn't have the best snow there this year, but um, even with not that – yeah, even with not that much snow – the uh, groomers, the Peace Basher people did a really good job and were able to keep a really good surface yeah, for, um, for a lot of the season. And another cool thing was on the Sestria Stad, you see a lot of World Cup skiers training there because it's quite similar to Courchevel. Mm-hmm. So they pop through the Frejus from yeah. from Courchevel mm-hmm. and um, train on the Sestria Stad and um, it was really cool, really interesting so, and good community of skiers. There, people are keen and, and love it. It's a it's a pleasure to watch World Cup skiers train, isn't it? My God, the, the, the skis make a different sound on the snow. That's the, that's my thing. From that's why I love to go to Sasfe in the autumn or it's late summer autumn. You, every now and then you get to see some just some absolute extraordinary skiing. And it's just a different world. It's a different level completely. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I'd never thought about the sound, but you are right. It's it's just obviously the way they arc it, yeah. arc the ski in, in the snow. Yeah. And just the accuracy of the way they do it. I th- uh, I, yeah, I think it is that. John John Arson, when I spoke, spoke to him, was talking about this sort of functional minim- minimalism. It's really into that. And that's kind of what you see in the World Cup, isn't it? So I need to do this. I'm only going to do this. I don't need to do any extra extra movement. You know, my, my hip drags on the snow as a consequence of what I'm doing rather than doing it for stylistic reasons, that kind of thing. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I'll do... John's coming down to New Zealand this winter, so oh, I'm going to have he? a conversation with him about that. Oh, good. Yeah, no, have a chat with him about that because he's uh, – he's, oh, I had a lovely, lovely time talking to John. He's really, like, brilliant. Just love him. 
Um, but the yeah, I, I, the, the grooming, the good grooming, I think is a feature of Italy in general. Because every time I go to Italy, the pizza are immaculate, absolutely immaculate. Like it's better than better than Swiss ones, that's for sure. Absolutely, I, I do agree there. Have you ever been to Cortina? No, I haven't. The only place I've really skied in Italy is um, uh, is in Chivigna and Valtonecce, and that 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 is like all of that area. Just the minute you cross over to this to the Italian side, it's just like wow, this is this is just like carving heaven, you know. But I haven't yeah. been to Cortina. No, that's on the list. I'd agree. Um, Italy is really carving carving heaven and. Um, yeah, if you go to Cortina, that's another... I went there a couple of times this year to ski with a friend of mine who lives there, and um, it's absolutely fantastic. And I think that's why I'm starting to kind of toy with the idea of um, Ancestria every year try and put on a carving camp mm. um, and, you know, try and bring people out to Italy to do a camp, you know, training camp specific to carving. Mm. And you know, Sestria or one of these other resorts that just have really good pastes. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's why it was always one of my early season trips, and it's been kind of blocked for the last year or two for me. But every every time my birthday, I like early December, I try to go to Chivinia and just spend the day. You know, like because you can really do, you just spend the day on your edges, basically. You know, you're just carving everywhere. And because the, the slopes are a certain steepness, so you don't have to kind of, they're, they're not, you know, it's perfect for early season. You can just kind of get your skis and find your balance and, and all that sort of stuff. It's just like, oh, it's just magical, magical, magical place. And the coffee's good and the people are lovely and everyone's having a nice time. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree. Skiing in Italy is um, really quite, um, quite special. And I think... Um, a lot of, uh, you know, you know, kind of tourist skiers, but also keen skiers as well. When they think of skiing in Europe, they think Austria, Switzerland, France. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that um, a lot of people don't think about, you know, they more associate Italy with Rome or Tuscany or mm. Florence or something like that. Yeah. But I think going skiing in Italy, especially if you're into carving and good food, yeah. is... Um, is something not yeah. to be missed. Absolutely. No, I completely hear you. Um, moving from there, let's jump around again. Talk to me about the upcoming Kiwi season. What's that? Uh, what's that going to look like? You guys are open for business as a country again, and uh, you're working with rookies down there, right? Yes. Yes. So this season should be a hopefully be a real big one. It's uh, first uh, season that we've had the borders open. In, uh, since 2019, uh, New Zealand's open for tourism again, which is fantastic. And I'm going to be working the whole season for Rookie Academy, you know, which is a um, training ski instructor training provider here in Wanaka. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually been around uh, since the early 90s, which is quite cool. Yeah. Um, and this year... Um, Rookies is able to finally get back uh, full stacked international staff, um, which is really cool. And this year uh, we're going to be doing um, training and exams for um, BASI, uh, PSIA, CSIA, uh, 
and IASI. They're going to be our international um, kind of training um, and certification um, options for this year, mm-hmm. plus uh, also the um, advanced instructor training camps. So they've been really quite popular with people who are certified, um, may not necessarily actually work as a ski instructor, mm. but are really interested in training with top people and uh, pushing their skiing. And um, those are two three-week camps, which uh, will be pretty cool. And it's good to have them running again for the first time in two years. Tell me more but about then, that, because that's the kind of, that's the product that I'm looking for. Yep. Three weeks I haven't got, but that is the kind of product that I'm looking for, which is sort of looks like professional development, but without an exam at the end of it. I've done my time with exams, so I kind of I'm just looking for knowledge, which is part of the reason I do this podcast. But so, what does what does that program look like? Because that sounds exactly if you could condense it down into like a weekend, that's exactly what I'd be looking for. So that's it's effectively exactly what you described. It's professional development without an exam. Uh, can you most that, people, sorry to stop you there? So then, can you take that model and when you come back to Europe, put it on your list? run it, and I will be your first customer. Sounds great. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. And I tell you, there will be loads of people who are interested in this. I'm convinced of it. Maybe we could do weekends. Yeah. We just do it here, yeah. right? <laughs> just come to me. I'll put you up. You can stay in my spare room. <laughs> now, that sounds good. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's explore that Let's explore that more. Harry, I'm going to um, put this on my list. That's, that's how good an idea this is. Okay, so carry on. Tell me all about it. Go on, sorry. Tangent. So basically, you come to Wanaka uh, for three weeks, or some people actually stay the whole time and do six weeks, and it's not training for a specific association or for an exam. Uh, You might have aspirations of passing an exam, but we have people come down that are, you know, already level three, things like that, that train to become the skiers that they want to be and develop the technical understanding that they want to kind of dig deeper in. And we use top international trainers that um, often are, you know, inter-ski team members, um, you know, top X racers, et cetera. Um, But we say to our trainers, don't go out there well, you can if you want, but don't go out there and just be like, this is what we do in my association. Mm-hmm. I'm going to train you on this. We ask the trainers to go out and present and coach people on what they are doing and their thoughts and what works for them and what they think the student needs to work on and develop. Yeah. That's cool. So that's... That's really. I'm sure there would be a demand for that. It's like a professional development refresher, right? But better, you know, slightly better. Yeah, exactly. Because it's not a refresher where it's like we've changed this in the manual in the last three years, so we're going to run you through that. Yeah. It's it's just I am able to achieve this ski performance because I'm doing this. Let's go out and try it. I'm able to teach my guests this because. Of I work through with these factors, mm. etc. And um, 
it's really quite cool because I think one unique thing about New Zealand is we're able to get a lot of top ski instructors down to work on these programs because it's their off season, mm. because they don't have their already Northern Hemisphere commitment. Yeah. 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 Well, that's such a good thing. That's really such a good thing. And and the rest of the program looks like, so you've then got presumably, um, sorry, I'm jumping onto the, uh, the, the exam bit now, but you've got then presumably a whole bunch of kind of trainers from other associations who are then coming down to run either gap courses or exams within those those systems yeah exactly exactly so basically rookie started out as just you know kind of um the united nations gap courts you might mm-hmm. say a bunch of different associations and a bunch of different trainers, and people can qualify in the system that they wish. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, that's running. We've got um, 10 week, seven, 10 and 7 week level 1 and 2 programs, 5 week level 3 program. Um, and the kind of advanced instructor training that we just spoke about actually kind of bred out of this because people came down and did their you know traditional one and two gap program Mm. and then they moved they decided they wanted to come back they were like i loved it i want to come back again so then Mm. this kind of um, advanced training built from that so yeah that's the 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 full season programs one and two and uh as well as that we also do camps for uh, regular clientele, regular skiers that want to become better at skiing. Okay. That sounds cool. That's it. And, and so you then spend pretty much the entire New Zealand winter skiing. Actually, you must be skiing at some pretty reasonable level then. You're not skiing with like regular guests, right? You're, you're skiing with, with, with relatively high-level ski instructors. Yeah, exactly. So... It's great, and I, you know, it's great training. I see it as my training. We, all of us, all of us staff that work at Rookie Academy, mm. we see it as our training season. Mm. We work with cool people like the trainers, but also the guests that come down. But it's our ability to train because also the trainers all take Wednesdays off, and we go up and we train together. Mm. Oh wow! Okay, so you're skiing seven days seven days a week. No, we're skiing six. Okay. Um, four days, four days a week. The Rookie Academy program runs Monday, Tuesday, uh, Thursday, Friday. The trainers training on Wednesday, and then we might ski on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why even our gap program is only four days a week is because we believe that we want our trainees to ski five days a week, but we want them to go out and do a day by themselves. Yeah. So they develop a deeper understanding and ownership of their learning, Mm -hmm. and they can go out on a Wednesday, have a ski for themselves. I think it's really quite cool because they see all the trainers skiing on Wednesday as well. Mm. So they're like, oh, if the trainers are out, I should be out too. They can go out and work on things in their own little group. We encourage them to all go up together and ski. Mm-hmm. So then if they have any questions or anything like that, they can come back on uh, Thursday and, and, and talk to us about it. Mm-hmm. 
No, that's good. That's good. It's one thing I remember back from when I was doing my initial kind of gap thing that I did in Saspe, was I would always go up on my day off and, and, you know, I didn't always want to, but I wanted, I always went up on my day off just to kind of practice. And I think it's good, you know, to, to kind of put into practice all the things that you were, you had learnt during the week. Um, and in Saspe, we were getting enough kind of down days due to weather anyway that we, that, that it wasn't too much of a kind of physical um physical issue which was pretty cool yeah absolutely it's yeah it's good to go up and practice yourself to try and almost consolidate those thoughts um that or ideas or feelings that you've developed with uh you know skiing with some with a trainer and then you take it out and try and work it out yourself as well yeah it must be pretty exciting now that you know it's going to be open there's gonna be all sorts of people there this year like it's uh that's um it's gonna feel. It's gonna. It's gonna be nice, isn't it, to see see so many kind of faces. Yep, absolutely. It's gonna be. It's gonna be great to. You know, the last two years, Rookie Academy has only really had kind of four or five trainers working. Mm-hmm. Um, and this year, um, for August, there's gonna be twenty four staff. Wow. So well, that's a big jump. Pretty cool. That's a really big jump. Yep. Oh, cool. Really big Canadian program this year. I think um, a lot of people are ed- educated in Canada are keen to come down and do the do the um, the Canadian Level Three program. That's mm-hmm. been really quite um, quite popular this year. Yeah, I can imagine. Oh, cool. So we, I mean, the last kind of bubble that I've got that I would love to to talk to you about is labelled tech, but we have talked a little bit of technical. Um, but where I've got a sort of general question for you, which might be interesting, might not be. But where do you, where do you see or feel that the turn starts? How do you, how do you get the turn going? What's the because I know you think quite deeply about tech, so I'm curious to know if you have a trigger movement or what you think is the bit, right? We've got to get our skis from one set of edges to the other, but what's the initial mover for you that kind of gets it going? Exiting the fall line. Okay. Exiting the fall line of that current, like kind of work or power phase. And the moment I start flattening, the skis or releasing the skis out of that old turn, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I think the new movement has begun. Okay. And so if we were to break that down further, what is the movement that, so, so it's when the skis flatten, you are saying old turn done, new turn is starting, but what's the movement that you use to flatten them? Yeah. So the, what I'm thinking about personally is a softening of the current outside leg. Okay. So, you know, we've we've dealt with the load, we've built the pressure against the ski, and the ski is bent, and then as I start to flex or almost like release some muscular tension out of the current outside leg, mm. it begins the flattening process on the skis. Yeah. Which then. But obviously the skis aren't flat yet, so they're still the skis are still pulling me in the direction of the turn I wanted to go in. Mm-hmm. But 
as the skis are, as I'm wanting to flatten, I feel like there's a muscular disengagement with the current outside leg, Mm -hmm. and I try and couple that with a muscular engagement of the new outside leg. And as I disengage the current outside leg, it naturally flexes back towards me. And as I'm flexing that leg back towards me, I'm trying to extend the new leg and create balance and platform and grounding on that new leg. So I cleanly roll out of the old arc and into the new arc without a break in movement. Yeah, so it's a sort of a simultaneous flex and stretch whilst you're going over the ski. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm thinking, you know how you've got your traditional terms of like crossover, like a extend traditional up extended transition. Yeah. And then you've got your cross under, like more mobile technique, what you might more see in Japan. Mm-hmm. I think of it as a cross middle. Yeah. Like a neutral. I'm trying to I'm trying to do a um flex yeah, flexion old outside while extending new outside. So I cross in the middle. But that's not, you don't just do that, right? Presumably you're, you are um, skillful enough to, to do different ones according to what you need. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm, I'm trying, I try and almost think about things in like what I ideally want to do but then I might adjust depending on the situation in front of me. Mm. So sometimes a more extended transition is appropriate. Sometimes a more flexed transition is appropriate. Mm. But my kind of cue, if I'm thinking in an ideal sense, what I'm trying to do on a, you know, a nice consistent pitch is a, a flexion of the outside leg with extension of the new outside leg and I'm coupling that always, though, with accurate movements of the ankles to roll the skis out and then into the new side. Okay. Um, and then you're flexing, presume, uh, it's flexing, when we're talking about laterally moving with the ankles being the primary kind of accurate mover and then you're adding in knee and then hip according to what you're trying to do? Personally, for myself, I think about the ankles and knees at the same time. Mm-hmm. So when I say yeah, when I say ankles, I'm also thinking about ankles and knees at the same time. Mm-hmm. And the way I think about it is um, like to exit the old turn, uh, rolling the ankles and knees, and that naturally, along with the um, kind of flexion extension I spoke about, brings the hip back over top of the feet, mm-hmm. uh, back over top of the base support. And then from there, I roll the ankles and knees into the new turn. And then once I feel grounding and platform and balance, I then allow the hip to move in to increase edge angle when and if necessary. Understand. So, in fact, we were earlier talking about a similar kind of thing in terms of 
as you go through the transition we're using different words and but the 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 thing that i have to really try and remember at the start of the season is not to dump all of my weight inside too soon because that is my early season habit is actually you've got to get stacked up above you've got to get your hip stacked up above that outside ski in order to be able to go back in again in fact absolutely and that's actually where i quite liked the way that Basie described the turn phases with you know build you got to build it mm. then you work it then you release it yeah it's quite simple that i think the swiss talk about the same thing yeah, know, yeah yeah uh, yeah everyone one, two, talks three. about the same thing yeah really i just i think the words that Basie use it's something that i quite like mm-hmm. and um and I, I definitely think yeah you want to make sure you you're not dumping the hip in. A big thing for me I find is in order to stop the hip dumping through the top of the turn as well, I've got to make sure my new outside foot is moving uh, forward and down the mountain. I find I see a lot of people whose hip dumps in. Mm. Their outside foot actually gets a little bit back. Yeah, and gets left behind, right? Over yeah, and forward on the inside foot. Mm. So I think if you're driving the outside foot forward through the top of the turn, and you know, you're not pushing it well out in front of you, but just allowing it to move with you, mm. it allows you to create and build that that kind of platform so you can actually then move in and work with the forces. It is one of the things that I think you do see a lot at the lower levels of any instructor system, I think, is is that there is that tendency to leave the outside ski behind or sort of depower the ski by kind of letting it trail behind. Um, And it's such an easy fix for a lot of people, you know, because all you need to do is really make them aware of it and give them either the cue... Remember my old boss Rolf saying this to me is he was always talking about driving the outside ski around the turn. But you can also think about that in a different way. You can also think about kind of just bringing back the inside ski a little bit. So you sort of flex your kind of ankle and knee back and so that the two ski tips almost come parallel as opposed to being completely split. And it gives what you see instantly in that situation is that you see people then they sort of get it and then all of a sudden they start to notice that the ski works and they're like oh and they get jetted in the turn because the ski is then starting to have this ability to do its job which kind of shows them and then they're on the right track it's like yeah that's what it's supposed to feel like you're supposed to feel the ski working like that you're not supposed to kind of have it dragging around the turn after after the rest of your body's done its work. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think, like, I've found that um, I've had success with um, training people. Some people resonate with outside foot forward. Yeah. Some people resonate with inside foot back. That's right. Some people, it's a little bit of a mix in between the two. Mm. But I totally see what you mean. And I've seen it a lot with people that drag the outside foot behind. I think it, part of it is because when they see really strong skiers, they see a lot of angle, they see the hip quite far 
inside the path that the feet are taking. Mm -hmm. And the easiest way to get your hip in is to let your outside foot fall back and just like push your hip split, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, uh, 100%. And it's, like I say, you can make big changes in people like that, you know, very, very quickly. And the hip itself is such a tremendously powerful joint and area of the body that you can make, you can generate tremendous power just by kind of stacking it right, you, you know? Absolutely. I, I teach a lot of hip position, um, and the way the hip moves when I'm teaching skiing, because I think people get scared of it because there's, you know, kind of, there's almost two, like, kind of words that have become a bit taboo in skiing almost, um, or two phrases, kind of hip dumping and hip rotating. Mm. But I think that if you can work with the hip accurately, it actually is the power tool that you need to really create performance and, and, and dynamic movement and, and, and balance. You know, I think I think that the hip and the way the hip works, it's it can be quite a misunderstood uh, subject, and I think it's it's really important. And also, you spoke about kind of the split in the skis or the lead change, whatever you want to call it. Like, I really believe that I know lead change occurs, you know, due to slope angle things like that. But I'm personally trying to have as minimal lead change as possible. Yeah, me also. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to notice in the summer when you watch all those skiers, kind of the World Cup skiers doing all their basics, they work a, a tremendous amount on where the position is in reg- uh, position of the hip is with regards to the feet. I've noticed that a lot. They did a lot of those kind of slow speed drills, a lot of hands on hips, all that sort of stuff, like just to kind of make sure that they are, they have got the hip in the right place before they start to speed everything up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I think it's a real key fundamental. And when I've spoken to a lot of friends of mine that you know have coached, you know, World Cup, Europa Cup, and whatnot, it's a big focus in that World Cup scene. And I think it's something that ski instructors, in my opinion, potentially have neglected neglected a little bit. Yeah. And it would be. Uh, it's. I think it's a cool thing to talk about. Cool thing to think about. Yeah, I think you're right. We have been going about two hours, and I don't want to take up too much of your time. You've got a, a life of your own as well. Um, <laughs> I've got stuff to do today. But tell me, um, why don't you, everyone who comes on here gets a chance to kind of plug what they're doing. So tell us where people can find you if they want to ski with you. Um, and I will add all of this to kind of the show notes so it's all there. But uh, yeah, t- tell us, where can people find you? Also, um, if you want to. Um Get in contact with me. My Instagram is just at Harry McFadden. Mm-hmm. And uh, feel free to give me a DM on there or something. And then also you can email me if you want, uh, harry at rookieacademy.com. And um, if you go on the Rookie Academy website, um, there's all the details about skiing with me in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, I'm... Doing, I do some Rookie Academy camps in Europe. Mm-hmm. Last year we did a few in Italy. This year coming up, we'll probably do a few in Italy and maybe Switzerland as well. Yeah. And uh, details will be coming out on my Instagram and on the Rookie Academy website um, when uh, when we get everything finalised. 
Do you get, just curious to ask you, because um, my ski instructors are mad about Instagram. I don't quite get it. Um, I don't think our buying demographic is on Instagram. But do you get a lot of, uh, do you get a lot of inquiries and business out of Instagram? Depends on the part of the world I'm working in. Mm -hmm. I agree. Europe is not the strongest demographic for it. Um, I got a lot more when I worked in Japan. All right. Okay. Yeah. A lot more when I worked in uh, Japan, customers will search for ski instructors in Niseko and and places like that. Um, I get, uh, you know, the odd ski instructor that does our, um, you know, advanced training camps in New Zealand, you know, might have been following me on Instagram or mm-hmm. or whatnot, but not a particularly large amount. However, I don't have a particularly strong following. Um, some of my friends who are ski instructors that have, you know, five, 6,000 followers, I know they yeah. generate um, a relative amount on there. Okay. But, yeah, not, not heaps. Interesting. In, very interesting because there's a, like I said there's a whole kind of one of my roles within the ski school is marketing and, and, and in conjunction with my marketing guy and kind of we talk about this often but it's a question of where your client demographic lives and I suppose if you're selling ski instructor training and high level kind of tuition maybe people who are buying that kind of thing are more likely to be on Instagram but for what we sell it's not so much. They're not there. They're not in that. But I think the next generation of parents probably are on Instagram, but the current generation who who make the buying decisions for us tend to be on um, tend to be on Facebook. I think Facebook, Google Ads, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely, I think there's definitely more business comes out of Facebook, Google Ads, and things like that. But I do think Instagram is something that even if you don't do it much, it's good to have a profile. Mm. And even if you update it just a couple of times a season, just so you've got a foot in the door. Yeah, well, absolutely. I think that's uh, that's on our summer list of things to do, um, for sure. Cool. All right. Well, look, um, I really, really, really appreciate you taking time out. And I've loved, loved this chat. Absolutely amazing. I've learned so much. Thank you. Hey, no worries at all. It was great to have a chat. And... Um, I'll probably be in, I'll definitely be in Switzerland. I'm probably going to be in Switzerland for most of this winter coming up and um, I'll be there for the Christmas holidays. Um, Let's go skiing um, maybe in January in the quiet time. That will be absolutely marvellous. Thank you. Thank you so much. No worries. I'll come to you. I've only skied in the Port du Soleil once about eight years ago. Okay. So I'll, I'll come to where you are and show okay. me around. Yeah, all right. All right. I don't want. I don't want to. You know. Don't want to oversell it. It's not. It's not what you're used to. Okay. Cool. Thank you.